Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, so last week, the disciples uh, tasted persecution for the first time. Um, Jesus said that they would um, share in his persecution. They uh, made it very clear that one of the things you can expect as a follower of Jesus is if they didn't treat him well, they're not going to treat you well. And this is one of the first times in the book of Acts we start seeing that happen. Um, Some of the disciples got arrested. They were called in. Um, They uh, were thrown in jail overnight. Um, And then they went back and uh, joined the other believers. And in 23 through 31 of Acts chapter 4, they started praying for boldness. So we see the Holy Spirit filling them with boldness. But we also see, as we're going to jump into Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, Luke gives us this picture of the church. We saw a little bit in 3, but more in 4. This picture of the Holy Spirit working in the church and creating this, cultivating this atmosphere of unity and generosity. Um, And so you see the Holy Spirit empowering people for boldness. You see the Holy Spirit filling people and giving words to be able to speak in times of, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to say before these intimidating crowds. You also see the Holy Spirit moving through people and healing uh, people. You also see the Holy Spirit moving in the lives of believers and cultivating this atmosphere of unity and generosity. There's a quote I stumbled across this week uh, in preparation for this um, by a guy named A.W. Tozer. Um, and he, he gives this quote in um, response to what we're about to read in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. But he talks about the concept of the Holy Spirit working in the life of the church and everybody being on the same page and everybody being in unity and everybody having this sense of generosity. And what he says is, if you take a thousand pianos in a room and you tune all of them to the same fork, every piano will be in tune to each other. Not because each piano is tuned to one another, but because all of the pianos are being tuned to the same standard of that one fork. And it's the same in the life of uh, the church. And it's not just in the life of the early church, it should be in the life of us today. This concept of being in one accord, this concept of being in unity with one another, it doesn't come from being like one another. And that's the temptation you'd think in the life of the church. Well, if we're going to be in unity, then I, like, I just need to be a better Christian like this guy. Or I need to, start, I need to stop talking like this. And I need, I need to wear, you know, if I want to be a good follower of Jesus, like I got to get like a nice, crisp, flannel, plaid shirt and only wear jeans. <clears throat> Look, you're not going to follow Jesus better by doing things the way that I, I do them. In fact, it'll probably lead you farther away from Jesus. And it's the same way with everybody else, that you can't just idolize and lift up one man or one woman and just say, that's the standard. That's not the standard. The moment you start doing that, as we read through Isaiah, when you start doing that in your life, God starts picking those people off of the pedestals. I don't want that. I don't want to be picked off. So let's just be, uh, let's be aware of the way that God is calling us to be in unity. Being in unity doesn't mean I'm going to be like you, or we're all going to be like one person. Being in unity means all of us collectively have agreed that we're going to lift our eyes above men and women, and we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus, and he becomes the greater standard. And when everybody has fixed their eyes on him, 
and we're trying to be transformed to be like him, then everyone will be in unity. Even though we will look a little bit different, we'll smell a little bit different, we'll dress a little bit different, we'll get on each other's nerves still a little bit, there is still this sense that we are one family and there is a undercurrent of Jesus that makes us one. Do you follow? That's kind of at the heart of what's going on as we get into the text in Acts chapter four, so let's go ahead and do it. Acts four, starting in verse 32. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And nobody said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Hmm. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Here's one example of that, this guy named Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas. This is the same Barnabas who will later go on a missionary journey with Paul, and they'll separate because of an issue with his cousin, John Mark. Barnabas and John Mark were cousins. But this apostle called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. All right, so let's pause right there before we get into five because there's a contrast that Luke's about to give us. And the contrast is looking at what is happening when people are submitting to the teaching of the apostles. When people are reading the word, not changing the word, reading the word, obeying the word, people are getting saved and lives are getting changed. Now that last part is a really important one for us to emphasize because what's happening is they're preaching the gospel and the gospel is good news and it has um, a lot of different repercussions. When the gospel's preached and you accept the gospel of Jesus and you accept Christ, that, there, there's a lot of things that come with that. First and foremost is you're standing before God changes. You're now declared not guilty. I accept the gospel, the teaching of Jesus. I get, I get saved, I hear that message and I say, I surrender my standing before the Lord is is changed. I'm no longer declared guilty, I am not guilty. But it doesn't just change my standing before the Lord, it also changes my direction for eternity. I'm no longer bound for an eternal hell. I'm bound for an eternal heaven and a new heaven and a new earth. That's where I'm headed, that's good news. But for a lot of us, that's where we stop. The idea of the gospel being presented is about your standing before the Lord and where you are in eternity. And what, the, what Luke is trying to communicate through the teaching of the apostles here is that there's more to that. The gospel has an impact on your life right now. It's not just about where you're headed when you die. It's not just about being right before God. It's about what those things mean to your life right now. And what I mean by that is if a generous God sent his son on your behalf to die in your place, to take your punishment. If that was the generosity that the father showed you, how in the world can you live any other way but generous? If the model that was sent from you, from on high, is Jesus came and emptied himself and did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, 
then how is it that we can ever walk into a room and think that our privilege or our perspective or what we've achieved or how much money we have can buy us any position when that's not what Jesus, who was God, did when he walked into a room? There is a sense, there's a posture that we're supposed to be living with as Christians that says, I am nobody special because Jesus did not consider himself as anyone special. He didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Therefore, this is how you're supposed to be living. So this sense of everyone collectively emptying themselves and elevating Jesus above every other thing, it shifts the value structure of the church. And this is what's starting to happen. When everyone starts <clears throat> saying, okay, well, uh, it's not like I'm not, some of the people, they sold land and they gave the, um, the proceeds to the uh, apostles. Some of the folks, they didn't sell the land. Some of them just opened their house. Like uh, um, John Mark's uh, mom, she would open her house and people would come in and that would be a perfect location for them to have weekly studies and small groups. And so what you're not supposed to take away from this is, okay, well, I can't own anything here on earth. Well, there's an owning things here on earth and there's a thing, and then there's uh, things on earth owning you. And that's what you've got to stay away from. So what we're not talking about here is you can't be landowners and you can't own homes. What we're talking about is you can't let homes own you and you can't let land own you, okay? You can't let your job run you. You follow? There's a huge difference. That's like Grand Canyon wide difference. And this is what the apostles teaching. The apostles are teaching, look, what you have isn't really yours. It belongs to him. So whatever he says to do with it, do that. And some people being filled with the Holy Spirit, like, I, I don't need this much. I'm going to take it and I'm going to give it away. And some folks say, I'm going to use what he's given me for his glory. Please come over and use these resources. We are renting a facility right now from a church here in town who has built this facility and they're saying, use these resources. I talked to the pastor this week. He's such a generous guy. He's like, we love that you guys rent that facility. We want you to keep renting it. We love that God is using that gym for his glory. This is the concept that is being communicated. And when this starts being fleshed out in the life of the church, it upsets the value system, everything. Because before Jesus, selfishness is king. Reputation and connectedness to this world is king. Whatever I can achieve, whatever I can own, whatever I can take for myself to build my own personal king, that is king. But when Jesus shows up, that, entire, that whole thing gets flipped. Now, owning and pursuing and getting is not king. Now, sharing and giving and generosity is king. And so when this value system gets flipped, Good things start happening in the life of the church, but something else also happens. It starts exposing the people in the church who are not there for the right reasons. Because what happens is when the value system gets flipped, some people with dark motives, they want to take advantage of the sheep. So you're telling me that a whole group of people who are generous, who are giving, who does that attract? Wolves. People who love taking. 
who love owning. So if you tell me that there's a whole group of people who are just, they're just generous and they love giving, that is not just going to attract the needs. It's also going to attract the evil folks who want to, per, who want to um, pursue and um, leech off of all of the givers. They want to take advantage of that shift of a value economy so that they can keep for themselves, so they can get, 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 but also look spiritually mature. You see where I'm going with this? When God starts moving in his church, it empties the people and there's a general sense of unity and generosity. And that's great, but what it does is it exposes and it attracts other folks who like praying on those who are generous and like manipulating God's structure so that they can store up for themselves but also look religious in the process. And that's why Luke uh, positions verses 32 through 37 right with chapter 5. So let's get into Acts chapter 5 verse 1 and we're going to see how people who are in it for specific social credibility or just the appearance of Christians are going to be exposed. Verse 1 chapter 5. It says, but, and that's why I think these two sections are connected. We've got the whole church being gracious and giving, generous. And then verse 1, but, a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And, his and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did, did it not remain your own? Wasn't it yours? Couldn't you have done whatever you wanted with it? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So just a quick pause. What's happening here? A husband and a wife couple saw the value structure shift in the church and they saw an opportunity. And the opportunity was we could up our social credibility among these people by looking like givers, but also sell our land and keep a little bit for ourselves. It's a win-win. We can get wealthy and look humble and gracious and giving at the same time. We don't have to pick sacrifice. We can have the image of sacrifice and be wealthy in the process. And what Peter is saying, like, Ananias, don't you understand? Like, this was your property to begin with. And when you sold it, you could have just decided, if I sold this property for $50,000, I'm going to keep twenty five, dollars and I'm going to give twenty five dollars away. And when you went before the apostles, you could have said, I sold it for fifty, dollars and I'm giving twenty five dollars away. But that's not what you did. You sold it for 50 and you came and you told the apostles you sold it for 25. So that everybody looked at you like this, oh man, he sold everything and gave everything. You didn't give everything. You kept half of it for yourself. That's what Peter is addressing here. The desire we have, on the one hand, to look religious, and on the other, to not sacrifice anything at all. Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it 
Yeah, I bet. (laughs) And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. See, that's what the youth group used to do. (laughs) I know what they're doing now, playing games and icebreakers. Back in the old days, you were on dead man duty. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so, for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. And they're going to carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came and they found her and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. What was the response to that? Did people get offended? Did people start leaving the church? How dare you, God, kill someone for lying? Nope. Verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So Luke is contrasting his story with generosity with a story of selfishness. And this story is interesting because this story parallels another story in the Bible back in the Old Testament. No one have to turn there. I'm going to give you just a quick synopsis there. You can go read about it later in Joshua chapter 7. The first verse of Joshua chapter 7 says, but the people of Israel broke faith. That's an important word phrase. We'll come back to it in a second. Joshua 7.1 says, the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmri, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So what happened was the people of Israel had finally crossed over into the promised land and they were told to go take this city called Jericho. Well, they took the city of Jericho, it fell, God was faithful, and Joshua commanded the people, hey, when the city falls, I know the temptation, you're gonna wanna go in there and raid the city. Because now it's just there for the taking. There's probably gold, there's animals in there, there's like wealthy pieces of art. Don't take anything. That stuff belongs to the Lord. That is devoted to the Lord. Well, one family, Achan and his family, they didn't listen to Joshua. They broke faith. And they went in and they took some of the things, some of the nicest gold, things hiding under the rubble, and they hid it underneath their tent. Well, when Israel went to go take the next town over, God said, I want you to conquer this city. When they went to go conquer the city, they failed. And the people in the city conquered Israel. And Joshua goes back and says, Lord, what is going on? And the Lord says, my people have broke faith with me. That phrase, break faith, or they broke faith, is the same phrase in Acts 5 when it says, that Ananias and Sapphira kept back what they sold. Now, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but it was translated in Greek, especially for the Hellenists. We'll talk about them in a little bit, or next week probably. But there was an Old Testament version in Greek, and that phrase in Greek and this phrase in Greek is the same exact phrase. Breaking faith and keeping back 
is the same phrase. And so what we have here is we have a story from the Old Testament, we have a story of the New Testament, where two families are doing the same thing. They're manipulating God for their personal benefit. They're breaking faith. They're saying, I don't trust my God to supply all my needs, so I'm going to keep back some of what he's given me just in case. Do you see the offense? God, I don't trust 100% that you're gonna come through, so I'm going to create a contingency plan. I'm gonna hold back some of my faith. I'm gonna hold back some of my supply just in case you don't come through the way that I think you should come through. God saw that sin of Achan and the punishment was death. God saw that in Ananias and Sapphira and the punishment was death. They both ended the same way. Now you may be reading this and thinking, God, that seems really harsh. Why is God taking people out who are breaking faith and keeping back? Why is that? It's because in these specific circumstances, it affected the greater family. There are situations and circumstances where people break faith and they don't trust God 100%, but not everybody is dropping dead. Why is it specifically in these situations? Because God knew in these situations that in taking these rebellious people out, it would generate a sense of awe and fear of the Lord so that people would continue to take him seriously. And there's precedent for this. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 5 about the idea that a little bit of leaven leavens the entire lump. That you can't live in community and a few folks in community are just continuously living rebellious lives and they refuse to repent. They just like living with that little bit of sin in the closet. They like holding back from the Lord. They don't like surrendering everything. They like the fact that there's a little bit of them left that God hasn't completely ravished their entire life and taken control of everything. Their thoughts, their feelings, their money, their hobbies, what they do with their spare time, where they work, how they work, how much money they make, what they do. God, God controls a good 80% of their life, but they like the fact that that other 20 they own. And what God is saying is that when you allow that kind of culture to live in the life of a church, it starts affecting everyone, especially if it's at the top. If you've got a pastor up there standing on stage wearing $5,000 sneakers, what does that communicate to the life of the church? And so what we're witnessing here is what Paul is trying to get us to understand in 1 Corinthians 5. There is grace for sin if there is repentance. But, when, but where people refuse to repent and continually live in their sin, there will be God's judgment. You cannot run from God. 
You cannot manipulate the, the God of the universe. The Holy Spirit that is filling believers and at work in the church, He will absolutely expose your sin if you don't repent of it. And that should create a sense of fear and awe for our God. The idea that He loves you so much, He won't let you keep hiding that thing that's giving you cancer. He loves you too much. He would, he would rather you suffer in prison if that's what it takes in order to redeem your soul. Look, don't fear the guy who can take your life. Fear the God who can kill your soul. Who can give eternal... That's what we're talking about here. This is the dread that Luke is trying to get across. And that is absent from most churches, at least in America. The sense that if I don't surrender, if I don't give, if I, if, if I don't treat what Jesus is offering as the greatest treasure in the entire world, there will be repercussions. No, there's no repercussions. You can kind of be in, kind of be out. It doesn't really matter. It, it, none of this matters much. That's the attitude we live a lot of our spiritual walk with. What you spend your free time doing doesn't really have that much significance. No, it has great significance. And we're looking at a couple who lied about how much money they made on a property and they suffered judgment for it. And you may say, I don't like that. But just remember who you're saying, I don't like that too. It's not me. It's the Holy Spirit. You're telling God Almighty, I don't like the way you do things. Just let me step out of the room before you do that. <laughs> Go to verse 12. This is now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. This is that big porch on the outside of the temple we talked about last week. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Why is that? Because people who are lying are dropping dead. <laughs> That's why. Because people are taking the Lord seriously. Because they're realizing what's at stake here. That this isn't a social club. This is something that you, you need to count the cost for. Because if you sign up for this and you follow him, you're promised suffering and trials, but there is a great surrender if you do. This is not something that you play with. This is not something that you halfway do. You either surrender or you don't surrender. That's what is saturating the people as they're watching the life of the church. If I follow this guy, this is what it means. It means I'm taking my hands off of the ownership of everything, that I don't run anything anymore, that, that he now runs everything through me, that I am now a vessel, he's in charge, and I follow his lead, he doesn't follow my lead. A lot of people aren't comfortable with that, and that's why this general fear and awe is setting in, because the reality of what this means is gripping the church and those on the outside. You know how the world looks at us now? Like a bunch of clowns. 
who can't keep our own stuff together. Riddled with controversy every week. Somebody else who stood, some pulpit, there's Sam saying, ah, I'm rethinking this whole Jesus thing. I don't even know if he exists anymore. There is zero sense of awe and the fear of God among those who are watching the church right now. And I pray that changes, but it only changes one way. And that's when the Holy Spirit starts filling and moving in the life of his people. There's no program we can establish to bring that back. God does it or he doesn't do it. Verse 14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women. God, we want that so bad. We want men and women to be added so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. And then as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. That's how desperate these people were for what God was offering through the church. These people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with them with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Praise Jesus. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they they were filled with jealousy. Why were they filled with jealousy? Because they liked being the center of attention, and now they weren't the center of attention anymore. So they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. And during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. So just if you missed that. The Sadducees arrested the apostles and put them in prison. And as soon as evening came, an angel came up and opened the door and said, no, listen to them, come on out. Here's what I want you to do instead. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. (laughs) And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And when the high priest came, those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came in, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. Um, (laughs) Funny story. Uh, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but we opened them and we found nobody inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed, wondering how this would come to. And about that time, verse 25, someone came in and told them, look, The men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. (laughs) And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force because they were afraid of being stoned by the people. (laughs) So the Holy Spirit is working in signs and wonders and miracles and healings and casting out demons in 12 through 18. Why is he doing this? We discussed it last week because it's a wake-up call. Now, I just want to sidebar for a moment before we get into this hilarious story about people refusing to listen to the authorities. And I want to mention something about the sovereignty of God. The Holy Spirit is God. He's a member of the Trinity. Okay? He's not magic. He's not just this force that's working behind things. The Holy Spirit is God. He's a member of the Trinity. 
And so what we're reading here is the Holy Spirit, God, working the way He chooses to work with these specific people at this specific time. Does this mean that He's always working with the, in this specific way with all people all throughout time? No. Does it mean that God has the power to cast out demons? Absolutely. Does he have the power to heal people of their sickness? Absolutely. Does that mean that what, that is what he always does every single time? No. Why? Because he's not a God that can be manipulated. He's not serving us. We're serving him. And he does those things when those things serve his purposes. And I know we don't like this, but sometimes it serves his purposes for you to have that illness. Jesus makes this pretty clear. Why was this person, uh, why, why is this person afflicted with this illness? Is it because he sinned or his parents sinned? And Jesus says, nobody sinned. He was afflicted with this so God could be glorified. That's why he had this sickness. So that at this moment, he could be healed. What about the guy last week? He was 40 years old and he's, he, he can't walk and he's laid at the side of the, the gate. Well, what about that guy? Well, I guarantee you when he was like 20 years old, he's probably mad at God. 30, 35, 38, probably upset that this is his life. Watched, heard of Jesus doing miracles at the pool of Siloam. This guy, he just made it down to the water and now he's healed. Why can't that be me, God? Because it's not your time, bud. God healed him at the right time because at that moment, that's when the glory of the Lord would be magnified above all other things and then 5,000 people will get saved. So why is this transpiring right now in this time? It's because it is giving credibility to the witness that the apostles have and it's spreading the awe of God and many people are getting saved. Now, it, the logical conclusion here would be, okay, well, if, if mass healings get people saved, then why aren't we seeing mass healings? Why don't we just start praying for that? Because that's not the only business that God is in. He is in that business, but it's not the only business. He's also in the business of filling people with boldness. He's also in the business of giving specific wisdom to people that is absent from the culture that they live in. So let me ask you this, what do you think is more needed in the culture we live in today? People getting miraculously healed or Christians filled with boldness and wisdom that can answer the questions that this society is throwing our way and making us look like buffoons about? What do you think we need more? Because I would argue that we need a generation to rise up that's filled with wisdom. I think that's probably the thing that is lacking the most. So I'm all, you, look, you tell me, God, are you, are you healing? Do, I'm there. I'm, I'm all for it. You want to cast out demons? I'd love to get behind. Oh, sure. Where do I pray? Who do I lay hands on? I'm all for it. But I think that what God is in, in, in where we're living right now, the society that we're called to, this part of the world, I think what we need more than anything is wisdom. And I think it would do us well if we had a little boldness as well. Because what's taught us in the last two years is that we, we, are, we are kind of weak and we lack understanding. And we don't know how to answer most of the things that are thrown our way. 
The Holy Spirit can change that. So I'm just introducing the sidebar because God knows what is needed in any situation and we don't. So we can spend a great deal of time praying for something that God is not gonna answer because it's not what is needed right now. So what I'm saying is we should be Christians who are way more open-minded about the way that God works and we are filled with faith and boldness that whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it, we'll get behind that, Lord. We're not trying to get you to do things the way you've always done them or the way that we think they should be done. We know that you have a way and we want to work your way. Amen? Now back in this moment, the leaders of Jerusalem are getting very upset and what I find very hilarious is that the apostles are arrested and specifically told, stop preaching the gospel. We're going to put you in jail. Don't leave this cell. And what is the first thing they did? They disobeyed their authorities. You know, some of you are going to like where this is headed. Some of you are not going to like where this is headed. I don't care. We're just going to, we're going to run over what the Bible is teaching here because verses 27 through 42, I think are very, very, very important in informing how we're supposed to see the world that we live in today. Let's go to verse 27. Verse 27 says, when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them and said, we strictly charge you not to teach in his, this name. Yet here you are filling Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. We told you as the authorities to not do this thing and you're not listening to us. We don't like that very much. And Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, but God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. So is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel this is the same guy that taught Paul. We'll find out later in Acts. He was a teacher of the law held in high honor by all the people. He stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So send those apostles outside and let's just us, let's us talk uh, and discuss this matter. Verse 36, uh, verse 35. Uh, and he said to these men, said to all of them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos, rose up claiming to be somebody. You guys remember him? And a number of men, about 400 I think, joined him and he was killed. And everybody that followed him dispersed and it came to nothing. And do you remember Judas the Galilean? He rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him and he too perished. And all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it's going to fail. But if it's of God, you are not going to be able to overthrow them. Yes. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called the apostles in, this is fun, they beat them and charged them, do not speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. And when they left, presence of the council, they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Wow. They rejoiced that they were beaten because it meant that they could be counted among 
their Savior. Verse 42, did they listen? No, because every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus Christ is Lord. What a powerful story Luke includes for us. You've got the authorities saying, we told you to stop preaching, and the Christians are saying, we have to obey God rather than men. Now, this may seem contrary to Scripture. Because Paul tells us in Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everybody. Uh, Romans 13, 1 says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. So how is it that we can be subject to the governing authorities but also obey God rather than men. Here's how I think that we as Christians should reconcile this. I think as Christians, we should lead with Paul's command from Romans, the command from Hebrews 12, 14. We should live in such a way where we are striving for peace and to not upset the apple cart and to just subject ourselves to the governing authorities as peacefully as we possibly can until those governing authorities force us to cross a line. What is that line? I think that line has to do with what God calls us to do. So here's what I mean by that. I think in any society, no matter where we're living or what time period, Christians should be the most wonderful, productive, joy-filled blessing of a people in society. There should be no better employee than a Christian. There should be no better uh, president than a Christian. There should be no better teacher than a Christian. There should be no uh, better soldier or police officer or judge than a Christian. But when society requires the Christian to be a better American than Christian, then we have to pick a side and it can't be society. We will be the greatest Americans you possibly could imagine unless you require us to be bad Christians. And we can't cross that line. If you enact laws, like we saw in Daniel, you can't pray. You can't meet together as a church. You can't study the word. You can't preach in public. You can't say things that are gospelly true online. You've asked us to cross a line, and we cannot obey you because we must obey God. And I think that's how we're supposed to reconcile this. But the problem is that if we follow this example that I just explained, which I think is scriptural, we will be the greatest people in society unless you ask us to offend our God. Then we simply can't do it. You want us to bow down to that golden idol? We can't do it. Then we're going to throw you in this fiery furnace. Okay. But we're not bowing down to the idol. We told you, we made a law, you can't pray three times a day. And we see you through your window, praying anyway. I have to obey God rather than men. Where does this ultimately leave us? If all of the people who follow Jesus follow this example, well, it puts us in society as the bad guy. Here's what I mean by that. 
History has shown that there is no end to what demonic governmental structures love oppressing people in the world. There's, there's just no end to it. And we, saw, we saw it in the book of Daniel. We see it in Rome. There is no end to the way that power loves more power. And we're promised from Jesus' words that things are going to get increasingly more difficult for people who follow Jesus. And so here's how I think this is going to go. When you push Christians to the line where they have to either obey God or man, they're going to obey God and not man, which puts Christians in a position in society, the unique position in society where they are the only people in society who are not playing nice. And society, some leader, rises up and says, guys, we've got an issue here. Everybody seems to be playing along. Everybody seems to be having a good time. And we're all, everyone's following the rules except for one group of people. It's the Christians. We made this rule not to pray. And these group of people don't have a problem with it. And these people over here are pretty tolerant. They don't have a problem with it. But guess who's still praying in schools? Guess who's still praying at the workplace? It's Christians. So we're not going to have a peaceful society where everyone gets along unless you remove the Christians. The Christians are the issue. We need to deal with the Christians. Does this sound familiar? This is how we got World War II. And at that moment... We either face the greatest season of tribulation and suffering and persecution that the world has seen since the first century church, or Jesus comes back and takes us all home. You know where I stand on the issue. By God's grace, he'll spare us of the suffering, but I don't think that's what's promised in his word. And so here's my plea for us today. Because we're going to, next week, Acts 6 and 7, we're going to look at, we're going to look at Peter, we're, or, uh, not Peter, we're going to look at Stephen, and we're going to look at how persecution was used in the life of the church to spread the gospel beyond Jerusalem. It had been stuck in this one little spot until one thing happened when this one guy, he was stoned to death, and as he was being crushed by these pebbles, these big rocks, he was being murdered, he looked up and he said, Jesus, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He was filled with the Spirit and didn't even hold anything against them. That, that moment scared Christians half to death. And guess what happened? They dispersed out from Jerusalem and the gospel started spreading like Jesus commanded it to spread. It wasn't until persecution hit that the gospel started spreading. And so I'm saying, God, pray. Lord, spare us from that. We don't want to suffer persecution. I don't want to suffer pain. But it's not really what I want. And if I'm going to follow you, Part of that might mean being counted among those who are worthy to be beaten for your name. And my job as your pastor is to not teach you a pretty little gospel that requires nothing of you. Because when that comes, you will not be ready. But by God's grace, if it does come in our lifetime, there will be a generation of people who will be ready for it. 
There will be a generation of people like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego when, when threatened, it's the fiery furnace or you bow down. There will be a generation of people with steel in their spine who say, I'm not bowing down to that. I have to obey God, not man, no matter the cost. Now, we finish today. What did we learn from Acts chapter four and five? We learned that the Holy Spirit rallies this new value system and he tunes our hearts to Jesus. We also learn that the Holy Spirit exposes people who like manipulating God for their personal gain. And we learn that the Holy Spirit loves challenging our allegiances. Are you going to obey God or are you going to obey man? But all of this work, everything we read and learned today, it's all rooted in the gospel, which is God's generation to, generosity to the nations. And the offer is the same as it was in Isaiah, as it was when Jesus preached it, as it was in Acts, and it is today. The offer to follow Jesus is come and be transformed. The offer is not just come and stay the same. The offer is come and be transformed. Come and surrender your allegiances. Come and experience the greatest unity that you have ever experienced in your life. Come and surrender the things that you thought were the most treasured in your entire life for something that is far greater in value than anything you could have ever imagined. Come and walk the path of suffering and persecution and be counted among those who are worthy to be called followers of Jesus. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.